Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording September 3rd, 2021, we're speaking to previous New Democratic Party defense critic and current NDP defense spokesperson and candidate for Esquimalt Sandage Sook, Randall Garrison, about the New Democratic Party's defense commitments and their 2021 federal campaign platform. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Mr. Garrison, welcome to Defense Deconstructed. Well, I'm glad to be here uh, and always a pleasure to talk with you, David. Uh, I, I know you want to talk about defense today and we're in the middle of a campaign. And uh, certainly for me as the defense spokesman for the NDP, I'm very proud of the platform that we've put forward. Uh, our main emphasis has always been making sure that the, those who serve in the Canadian forces have the equipment, support and training that they need both while they're in the field and after they get home and after they get out of service. So that's our main and uh, I guess chief point uh, of our platform. Um, we've also talked about the fact that of course, a lot of promises have been made in the past uh, and haven't really been fulfilled. So uh, our priority would be to put the emphasis back on Canada's a very key role in national peacekeeping that we've always played and we've let that wither away. And, and finally, of course, we given what's happened during the pandemic and the climate crisis, uh, we've seen the importance of the Canadian military in stepping in to help out domestically, uh, both in the long-term care homes and also in fighting fires uh, while um, the climate crisis accelerates. And in order to do that, the Canadian forces need an increase in their operating budget. We just can't keep asking them to do more and more each and every year uh, when the purchasing power of their budget is being eroded by inflation. And so uh, there need, does need to be that increase. Okay, so maybe let's just start talking about some of the operational outlook. So uh, get you to expand on some of that. What do you have as a particular vision for how an NDP government would look at Canada engaging in peacekeeping? Well, of course, we have a very strong commitment as New Democrats to multilateral peacekeeping, uh, but we're also committed to the new role that NATO is playing uh, in Europe as a, a, a force for democracy and stabilization. And so those should be key priorities. Um, we're very proud of the mission in Latvia, for instance, and of the training mission in Ukraine. We think those are very important, uh, as I said, both for promoting democracy and for promoting stability um, in the region. Uh, when it comes to multilateral peacekeeping, particular UN peacekeeping, we've really dropped the ball. Uh, we did a very, what I would call important, but token commitment by being a, a brief part of the Mali mission, which I think is still a very important mission uh, in, in Africa. Uh, we promised, uh, the Liberals promised, a rapid reaction force of 200 to be available to the UN. Where is that? We haven't seen it. And so there's some very easy things we can do at the very beginning uh, that we've traditionally done and we have the skills to do. And sometimes we have, uh, being a bilingual uh, nation, sometimes we have some skills that other militaries don't have. And also by being uh, a secondary power, uh, quite often we're more acceptable uh, to play these kind of roles in crisis situations. So lots of opportunity there for Canada to return to a role that we've, we've done very well in the past. On the home front, you mentioned uh, the, the types of domestic responses that we've seen more and more of. Um, what would that imply to you for an NDP government in terms of how the forces uh, would be positioned? Would that become kind of more of a dedicated uh, uh, task or, or how would that play out? 
Well, well, I think first of all, we have to make sure they've got the resources to do these things. And secondly, we need to look at uh, readiness. And so the Canadian forces have generally responded quickly into both the fires and to the, the medical emergency. Uh, but we know that there are shortages of skilled medical personnel within the Canadian forces, and we're not out of this pandemic, and we're unfortunately very likely to see uh, more pandemics in the future or new variants of this pandemic. And so a better job of, of getting people prepared for the kind of things we're going to face, both in terms of pandemics and the climate crisis. You mentioned earlier uh, the need for, for more operating funds in particular. I guess from a, a wider macro budget point of view, uh, what could Canadians expect to happen with defense spending under an NDP government? Well, we haven't endorsed you know, artificial uh, percentages of the GDP as uh, the former Trump administration was demanding. But we have said, and again, it's, it's very clear, an operating increase is necessary. That's beyond uh, the rate of inflation so that we can continue to ask the forces to do the jobs we're asking them to do. And in terms of equipment, we have endorsed uh, re-equipping the Canadian forces. And so because the Liberals shut down purchasing, shut down replacements in the 1990s, uh, we're stuck in this period where we have to spend a lot in order to uh, replace the ships, replace the jets, and replace lots of other equipment in the Canadian military. So going forward, what we need to do is to have a plan so that we don't end up in this situation where everything becomes obsolete at the same time. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but that's really what we're facing right now. So given, so I guess with the, the uh, outline plans for reinvestment that are underway right now, would there be any adjustments that you would make uh, off the top in terms of where, uh, which fleets are replaced or adding or subtracting from the existing sort of inventory? Well, we certainly would like to have a, a dialogue with Canadian forces, uh, especially on the jets purchase to uh, talk about what are the numbers we really need uh, to fulfill our domestic security requirements and our international requirements? Uh, I'm not sure about the number the Liberals have suggested, and we really need to know from the experts what it is we need in terms, in terms of JATS, for instance. Uh, and on shipbuilding, uh, I, I think you know, I've always been an advocate uh, that we probably need another supply ship, that you can't run uh, a, a country with so many ocean fronts uh, with only two supply ships, right? They require maintenance. Sometimes they go out of service. And so we would look very seriously at the need, uh, certainly in the medium term, to have another supply ship. And, and I'm not talking about uh, a leased ship that can't actually go into combat, right? I'm not talking about something where we pay for all the upgrades and somebody else owns it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about another part of the shipbuilding strategy, which was originally envisioned. Uh, and so we're, we're looking forward to that again. Okay, so there's a couple of, of different uh, aspects of the platform that talk about the way that you go about procurement. Um, so one of them, uh, in the, the wider kind of industrial policy section, you talk about the need to have uh, more domestic manufacturing, kind of drawing off of the experience we've had with PPE and vaccines during the, the pandemic, and specifically makes mention about the aerospace and shipbuilding sector. So does that imply that when it comes to procurement of things like the joint support ship that you're talking about, that there'd be a way of using procurement to fulfill a wider industrial strategy? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's certainly part of our vision of, of how um, Canadian defense fits in to Canadian economy. It's an important contributor. There are lots of jobs there. And, and there's, I guess, several aspects to that. One of them is maintaining our sovereignty. Uh, 
So if you always purchase everything from abroad, there's going to be somebody who can tell you you can't have what you need. And so having our own production facilities is a good idea. Uh, there's also maintaining the knowledge base in the aerospace industry in particular, where things change very rapidly. And so we'd like to see procurement that uh, is directed at helping us maintain those skills in the industry and the knowledge and the technology um, that we need to construct that kind of equipment. Uh, and then the final thing is there's no reason uh, why we can't have those good, high-paying, family-supporting jobs here in Canada. Uh, and we have said on the JET procurement that we think it should have been uh, a criteria that we would prefer bids that would construct in Canada. Uh, and we know that that can happen. Brazil has, is constructing fighter jets now uh, with their successful bidder. Uh, and there's no reason why Canada couldn't do the same. So drawing right off from that, uh, you talk in the, in the defense section of the platform uh, about um, maximizing the industrial technological benefits and jobs that could come with procurements. Is that something, is that a question to your mind of, of altering the existing policy or trying to use the tools within the existing policy that exist to, to better or, or, or maximum effect? Well, well, I guess there's two things about existing policy. One is, I'm not sure whether we win the prize for the most complex uh, procurement process for the military in the world, but we might. Uh, we've got four ministers, at least two other independent government agencies that have to sign off on any major contract. That's ridiculous. And it doesn't allow you to pursue those other objectives because each of those ministers, each of those agencies is pursuing their own objectives in, in procurement. So from the get-go, I would like to see us look at something like Australia or the UK, where there's a single minister who's responsible uh, for defense procurement. And when there's cost overruns or there's delays or whatever the problems are, there's somebody who could be held responsible for that. And, and in our system, as I said, four ministers on any contract. So it, it doesn't work at that basic accountability level. But the second part of that is that you can't get a focus on the other things you want to accomplish when you've got so many hands in the contracts. And so we would make it a priority to uh, make sure that industrial benefits flow to Canada. And you can't do that with four different ministers involved. Now let's take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors. In the next few months, Canada will select its next fighter aircraft that will help ensure the safety and security of Canadians and deliver economic benefits to industry. The next generation Block 3 Super Hornet is the best choice to take on Canada's most complex missions. It will also deliver more than 250,000 high paying jobs and 61 billion to Canada's economy over the life of the program. This is nearly three times more than its competitors. It has also work that stays in Canada, guaranteed. Along with the economic benefits, the Super Hornet is the most efficient, affordable means of transitioning from Canada's existing CF-18s to a new platform. It is capable of performing the full range of tactical strike fighter missions required by the Royal Canadian Air Force at a much more affordable rate. For the Canadian men and women in uniform that will be flying this aircraft, it's important that they can execute their mission safely and return home each and every day. The Block 3 Super Hornet's two-engine design ensures safe operations over open sea, the Arctic, and other challenging environments. Whether it's today or tomorrow, Boeing will continue to be a partner to Canada well into the future. Search and rescue uh, has been a, an NDP issue um, for some time, um, and the, the platform commits to uh, effectively benchmarking on an international level Canada's wider search and rescue effort, and then specifically aligning the, the search and rescue in the north with the needs of the north. So talk a little bit about what that benchmarking to your mind would entail um, and what specifically else do you think is needed up north? Well, I think benchmark is pretty simple. We can, we can look at what others are able to do and figure out how we can accomplish the same. And what we have traditionally done is under-resource 
search and rescue. Uh, and it has, just hasn't been a priority for the conservatives or the liberals. And so that's the first thing is to make it a priority and say that we can achieve the national standards. So that's how, to me, how you start out with that. Uh, I come back to the jets uh, again, when you talk about needs in the North, I would hate to see us purchase a jet that can't land in the North, right? Uh, and right now there's some of our bidders who can't. Uh, and so when we're purchasing any kind of equipment, including the jets, you need to look at the, the special parts of Canadian geography and Canadian climate and, and make sure that the criteria in these bids are set so that equipment is be, being able to serve the needs of Canadians, both in the North and in the South. And I don't think we've done that. We haven't done a good job of it, I guess I would say. Uh, another commitment on, from the platform is, is talks about the, the privatization of the Canadian forces uh, and bases in particular uh, and, and opposing uh, privatization. I guess uh, two parts of that. Is that something that you would apply uh, only on a going forward basis or is it something that you'd look at some of the existing arrangements? And are there uh, particular aspects of base privatization that are that are in question? Because there are there's uh, in any facility in, in government, there's there's some degree of private support. So are there particular issues that are, are, are of most concern? Well, I guess I was surprised to learn that uh, defense has the highest level of contracting out of virtually any government agency or department in Canada. And so there's something uh, peculiar going on when you get the prize for doing the least yourself. Um, let me back up and say why, why I really care about this. Uh, again, it comes back to um, sovereignty. Uh, we have seen instances in other countries where uh, companies who have contracts have actually refused to provide services under pressure from their own home government. We saw the UK get into that uh, with equipment they'd purchased in, in the EU. Uh, and uh, a second part of it is security. Uh, when people are coming and going from bases uh, and dealing with our military equipment, uh, I have a lot more confidence that somebody who has a permanent public service job is harder to influence and harder to uh, knock off course than a temporary part-time contractor and uh, who I don't know what screening process they've gone through. And so I think there are security aspects of that. Uh, and, and the final one is the one saying with procurement is the, it's the knowledge base. So if you keep contracting out, in particular maintenance work, you lose the ability to do this yourself. And what happens when the company you've contracted to goes belly up? And we've seen that happen. Uh, then there's nobody with the skills and capability to step in and, and do that work. And in the military, you know, we're often in an emergency situation where you don't have time to go around, get new bids, find somebody else, figure out who's got the skills. We'd be much better off if we kept, in particular, the maintenance uh, as much as possible in-house in the Canadian Forces. To switch gears, uh, there's a number of different commitments you made right, with respect to the personnel that, that serve their country in, the, in uniform. Um, Talk some, about some of the priorities there but, uh, to try and address um, introducing fair policies, as you describe it, uh, to govern the work of CAF members. Well, part of that is doing away with the privatization. And one of the examples that I, I've given people is that during the pandemic, uh, those who were in the Canadian Forces and those who worked for DND were forced to work alongside people who didn't have sick leave. Right. And so there was an incentive for those people, if they wanted to keep a roof over their head or feed their families, to come to work sick and work alongside people who uh, maybe weren't that happy uh, knowing that they didn't have sick leave and they should have stayed home. So it, that's a small but a very graphic example of how safe work uh, conditions are promoted uh, if you can get rid of, of the privatization. Um, 
I guess the other things there go to the, I want to go to the, the big level, and that is whether or not we're talking about employment in D&D or we're talking about serving in the Canadian forces. Uh, we don't have a system which allows women, uh, visible minorities, uh, and people from my own community to serve equally. And so as long as there's high levels of harassment, uh, there's high levels of sexual assault, uh, we don't have a fair and safe workplace. And the government has said a lot of nice things and done very little to make changes uh, in that respect. So we said, for instance, on sexual misconduct that we would immediately implement the recommendations of the Deschamps Commission. They've been around since the Liberals became the government. They haven't implemented. They like to say they have, but they've done some things that are gestures in the right direction, is what I would describe them, but not actually fully implement uh, the recommendations of the Deschamps report. And we said very specifically that uh, were the NDP to become government, cases of sexual assault would be referred to civilian authorities. So there's no way that anyone can have confidence, either the uh, perpetrator or, or the survivor, uh, in a, the fairness of the investigation when it's in-house. There's too many other things that come into play. And so uh, we would accept that recommendations, which came from Justice Fish, that all of those um, investigations move outside the chain of command immediately. Uh, you mentioned uh, one effort by a retired Supreme Court justice. Uh, there's another one underway uh, with Madame Abora right now. Uh, would you continue that? Well, I have the utmost respect for Madame Arbour, but I just don't understand why we've commissioned another study with essentially the same mandate uh, as the Deschamps report. Uh, and we've also had, on the specific issue of sexual assault, we've had Justice Fish. So uh, I would obviously um, continue to work with Madame Arbour on the ways that maybe we can implement things better. As I said, I have the utmost respect for her, but I just don't understand why we're doing this over when we have perfectly good recommendations that haven't been implemented. You've also called for independent oversight and accountability. Um, do you have a vision of what that would look like specifically? Well, there's a couple ways you can do that. And I, I'm not really wedded to either one. You can have an inspector general uh, that's uh, part of the Department of Defense, but not, not but outside the chain of command, I guess I would say, or you could enhance the powers and independence of the military ombudsman. And uh, I'd like us to get started on trying to figure out which of those would serve us better. Um, I tend to be a fan of the military ombudsman's office because they've done excellent work, but uh, they don't report to parliament and their reports go first to the Minister of Defense, and uh, sometimes they don't go any farther than that. So uh, that's one I've seen in action, but I'm, I'm also open to looking at the idea of an Inspector General model on that that other uh, militaries have. But what, but what I am committed to is getting something in place so that everybody has confidence that there is somebody looking into what's going on. And, and I've said very bluntly that we have had a history over the last decade of cover-up in the Canadian forces. You can't call it anything else. And so however well-meaning some of those people who've tried to bury accusations or bury uh, other things that happened, uh, we just can't let that go on. It doesn't serve our, our national security and it doesn't serve the people in the forces. And so that's why either enhancing military ombudsman or establishing an inspector general, uh, I think is the way to go forward. Last but certainly not least, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned uh, diversity and, and having our armed forces be more reflective of, of Canada as a whole. Um, how would you approach that? Well, I've been, uh, I, I think, as you know, in uh, estimates every year, I've been asking on recruiting, uh, what are we doing uh, 
uh, in particular to recruit indigenous people, people from Northern communities, people from rural communities and um, uh, racialized Canadians to the Canadian forces. And the answer tends to be well-meaning. Well, they're able to apply and we approach them just like we do everybody else, there's no discrimination. But it takes a special outreach uh, when an institution has a history of, of exclusion, I'll just be blunt, uh, to convince people that you do value their skills and you do value their presence. And without that special outreach, we're never gonna achieve these targets that the, the again, liberals are fond of targets, uh, but we're never gonna achieve those unless you do those specific and special outreach measures and those need to be funded. And instead we've cut back on our spending on recruitment. Last question, easier one, not related to your platform. Uh, you're a busy person, you're campaigning. Uh, what are you reading if you have time to read anything? Well, uh, I am a reader. Uh, and normally I do my Zooms from home with a, with a bank of books behind me. Uh, I've always been a reader, uh, but I'm in a campaign. So I have to confess, I'm not reading anything right now other than uh, briefing notes. So uh, I, I look forward when the, the uh, election's over to open up a good book again. Okay, well, uh, we very much appreciate the time. Uh, we'll let you get back to the uh, campaign trail and best of luck. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.